Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, the White House this week made it clear that China would face, quote, significant consequences if it provides Russia with military assistance or otherwise supports the invasion of Ukraine. Now, Russia has uh, apparently asked China directly for that assistance. And so the Chinese have a decision to make here. Uh, maybe there's some bluster on the part of the White House, but I think, you know, the extent to which uh, Western countries have banded together and imposed some meaningful and really tough sanctions against Russia should give China pause. China's better positioned to, to roll with some of those punches. But at a time when they may be facing some economic slowdown, is, is that something that, that China wants to take on? Is it in their interests to support Russia here? Or if they're calculation is that Putin has, has botched this. Maybe they want to steer clear of this whole situation. But, uh, you know, there's some questions here. I mean, obviously, you know, China's good at the long game in terms of what their ambitions are and, and how that gets realized. So where does Russia fit into that here? Well, some uh, interesting thoughts uh, laid out in an op-ed uh, this week from our next guest. Charles Burton is a senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute, a non-resident senior fellow with the European Values Center for Security Policy in Prague, former diplomat with Canada's embassy in Beijing. Uh, you can read his latest up at theglobeandmail.com and much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Charles Burton, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome back to the program. Good to speak with you, Rob. Interesting, by the way, to see your uh, McDonald Laurier uh, colleague, Marcus Kolga, one of uh, 300 or so Canadians uh, sanctioned by the Putin regime, maybe a, a bit of a badge of honor, I suppose, in a way, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I feel sorry that uh, I haven't made the cut, but uh, <laughs> exactly. it, is, it is pretty glorious. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so, you know, you, you heard, you know, the comments from the White House press secretary this week suggesting that China would indeed face sanctions if they get too involved here and provide Russia with military assistance. How seriously do you think China takes those those kinds of warnings? I don't think very seriously, frankly. I mean, you know, the Chinese economy and our economy and the U.S. economy are so intertwined. Like one would like to hear a bit of specifics on exactly what those sanctions might be and yeah. how they would impact on, you know, well-connected Canadian or American um, companies that have extensive profitable relationships with Chinese Communist business networks. So I don't think China is too worried about it. But I think what China is worried about is the Russians not succeeding in, um, you know, eliminating the Ukrainian culture and and bringing Ukraine into either a vassal state or even incorporating it into Russia, because from the Chinese point of view, uh, you know, the message is too clear. The parallel with their uh, very strongly held uh, aspiration to do the same to the island of Taiwan, you know, eliminate a democracy and uh, get rid of a of an increasing Taiwan identity and, and make them a a province of the People's Republic of China under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, China will not let, doesn't want to let this fail. And I think if the if U.S. if uh, Russia asks for support, you know, and rations and um, 
drones and maybe even larger larger artillery i think china's going to send it in because uh, i don't yeah. think china wants to see you know the west successfully push back uh the invasion of of ukraine because it has too many implications for china what if it's too late? What if Putin has screwed this up too badly? Is is there a downside to China kind of backing a, a loser here, backing uh, what, what's already a, a doomed military adventure in Ukraine? Absolutely. I think that, you know, China's narrative is the West is in decline. The leadership of the United States over the international community is drawing to a close, and China's on the rise and will assume that that position, you know, and and replaced the UN and the WTO with uh, Xi Jinping's doctrine of the community of the common destiny of mankind. So, uh, you know, if Putin fails, then um, things are not going the way that Mr. Xi has promised his Chinese Communist Party and people. So that would be, uh, you know, very bad news. So essentially, if the West was to genuinely and substantively support Ukraine, um, it would it would have all sorts of positive um, uh, impacts on strengthening our alliance and defending the international rules based order. If we continue to you know talk a good line, shine the colors of the Ukraine flag on the peace tower, and you know say how much we admire the the Ukrainians and everything, um, you know China wins. And in the long term, that's really very bad news for for a country like Canada and our and our Canadian values. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, we, we border Russia. And so the idea of, of Russia being more dependent on China or almost beholden to China, what are the implications for, for Canada? It's, uh, you know, pretty bad. China regards itself as a near-Arctic state, even though it's not near or Arctic. Mm-hmm. And Russia says that all of the Arctic's uh, natural resources, including those under Canada's continental shelf, belong to Russia. So if we get in a situation where Russia and China are emboldened by the West essentially wimping out on Ukraine and you know showing a lack of inability to 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 rise to the challenge of of appalling behavior on the part of these autocratic states then one could see them asserting their claim in the arctic as they have said you know you have to listen to what to what Putin and Xi actually say turns out that you know, we didn't think Putin meant it when he right. said that he was going to try and remake the, the Soviet Union, but he did. And now they're, they talk about us accessing resources in the north that we believe are ours. We haven't made, you know, investment in anything to establish our presence there in any meaningful way or to have any capacity to defend against, um, you know, hostile powers that may now see us as as uh, ripe for the taking. So, you know, we're really in a pretty bad situation because we just have been too naive and and too self-absorbed to recognize what's been going on. And now this Ukraine thing has brought it all home to roost. But, you know, to what extent will we actually do the right thing and and recognize that we should have been a lot more proactive on our on defense matters um, before now? Well, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's tough to assess when you're in the midst of it because it feels like this is all a, a, a huge yeah. wake up call. But you know, maybe in a few months we'll have moved on. I mean, it certainly highlighted the fact that when it comes to NATO, you know, we're we're not pulling our weight. We're not spending uh, to to our defense to the extent that that we have said we would. And obviously now, you know, the whole issue of us being able to assert our sovereignty in the Arctic that that's becoming a big flashpoint too. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, the thing is that it doesn't end with Ukraine. You know, let's say in the end uh, Ukraine is is uh, is occupied by the Russians, and you know we express a lot of resent, uh, regret about how sad it is, and do our best to support Ukrainians who've managed to to get away from you know the hell of occupation, and 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 a country in ruins. But then, um, you know, there's there's Poland, there's Moldova. I mean, uh, Putin th- never said that that he just wanted Ukraine. He wants to reestablish a Russian empire, and we just can't let that happen. You know, we have to have some sense of loyalty to to nations that have been our allies for a long time. And uh, and you know, I'm I'm sorry that that we don't see our government actually speaking with a bit more commitment uh, in that regard. It, it's really focused on Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which I don't think the Standing Committee, the Politburo, the People's Republic of China, you know, takes very seriously. They see Russia threatening nuclear war and engaging in an, an outrageous aggression against a Western ally, and uh, Canada and, and our allies really doing nothing but talking a good line. In the short term, though, I mean, you know, this this virus that two years ago escaped China's borders, it's it's certainly come back in a big way. And China's got a real problem on its hands. They've got some key industrial cities essentially under lockdown, tens of millions of Chinese citizens essentially under lockdown, and a very real prospect of uh, a significant economic slowdown in, in China, at least in the short term. Does that maybe distract China from, from some of these other issues, uh, at least in, in the, the near term here? What do you see as the impact? No, you know, you sure hope so. I mean, the Chinese response is that when, you know, a case of COVID or multiple cases of COVID emerge in some area to to fire the communist official for not doing a better job. But I mean, we're looking now at over 30,000 people sick in, in Hong Kong, a population of 12 million or so. So, you know, it's the, the is running rampant in a part of China. Um, largely because people there didn't vaccinate, but also because of their zero COVID policy, which means that people just don't have immunity to it. And mm-hmm. I think throughout China, uh, people just haven't developed the immunity that they that you need to fight it off. And the Chinese vaccines are not as effective as ours. They don't have the mRNA vaccines and right. refuse to import the good stuff. So, I mean, we could mm-hmm. see a COVID disaster there, which would be tragic because it is avoidable. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there, uh, see where everything goes uh, from, from here. Charles, always appreciate the perspective and the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Good to speak with you, Rob. Likewise. All the best. Uh, Charles Burton is a senior fellow of McDonald Laurier Institute, a former diplomat in Beijing. He's also resident senior fellow, non-resident senior fellow, the European Value Center for Security Policy in Prague. So some interesting perspective on how China sees this whole situation in Ukraine, how it plays into their interest, both in terms of their aims on Taiwan. Which, you know, and, and I think a lot of people know to this, look, if Russia gets away uh, with basically taking over Ukraine, that, that's kind of a green light to China to do the same to Taiwan. But the fact that this has not gone well in Ukraine, the fact that the international community has responded in a meaningful way might give China some pause. Not that China's going to back down necessarily. It views Taiwan as, as basically a, a province. But there's also that question of, you know, making Russia... Uh, essentially beholden to to Beijing and the idea of China as they say you know their own description of themselves as a near arctic state that that should ring alarm bells in this country now what are we doing to assert our sovereignty in the arctic
protect at a minimum the airspace over the humanitarian corridors so that Ukrainians can seek safe passage away from the war zones and to allow humanitarian relief to reach those areas under siege. Well, that was uh, Canada's opposition leader, interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen uh, in the House of Commons today, endorsing the idea of some kind of protection of Ukrainian airspace. This, of course, comes uh, on a rather historic day. Uh, where Ukraine's president uh, virtually addressed a joint session of parliament and, and called you know, for that, that idea of a no-fly zone, something that, that NATO allies, I think, understandably have been leery about. There is some thinking, though, that, look, if we can deny Russia the skies over Ukraine, that will be the final nail in the coffin of this uh, faltering Russian invasion. Now, it has certainly not succeeded, nowhere near what uh, Vladimir Putin initially uh, anticipated that it would. That doesn't mean, obviously, that Russian troops aren't able to inflict uh, tremendous damage. We've certainly seen images of that. So why did Putin invade? Why haven't things gone as he thought they might? And I guess these are some big questions to consider as we move forward and look at how this might potentially all come to an end. Uh, there's an interesting piece uh, up at theconversation.com uh, on some of these very questions. Joining us uh, on the line this afternoon is its author, uh, Anton Olenek. He's a professor of sociology at Memorial University in Newfoundland, uh, written extensively about uh, Ukraine and Russia, most recently uh, his book, uh, Building Ukraine from Within. Professor Olenek, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Uh, hi, Rob. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Uh... What do you make of the significance? First of all, we've got Ukraine's president addressing parliament. He's set to address uh, the U.S. Congress as well this week. Seems quite significant. What, what do you make of it? Well, first, uh, I would add that another significant event happened today, but not in Ukraine, but in Russia. You probably know that uh, today uh, the Russian, uh, Russian president imposed sanctions Right. Well, uh, more than 300 Canadians, uh, mm-hmm. all members of parliament and uh, uh, several members of cabinet. And uh, as uh, maybe five or six years ago, uh, one of the members of Ukrainian di- diaspora in Canada said, well, at that time he was also subject to uh, sanctions. He said, for me, it's like receiving a medal. Uh, right. to be decorated. Uh, it means if I'm under sanctions for defending Ukraine, uh, I'm rather proud of, uh, of, of being sanctioned for that. Uh, but uh, putting aside that, uh, yes, uh, you said that uh, uh, Ukrainian president is trying to reach out. Uh, well, he also addressed uh, British Parliament, uh, Canadian Parliament, U.S. Parliament, because Ukraine needs support in in this war because resources, internal resources in this car, in in this country, well, they are incomparable with uh, resources that are at disposal of Russia, and even Russia is now seeking, as we all know, some kind of support from China, not necessarily mm-hmm. military or perhaps military, but anyway, this war, after uh, maybe uh, just a bit more than two weeks, uh, exhausted resources of both parties, and this is a very uh, uh, troubling indication because the more it goes the more uh, ordeal or the more um, suffering uh, the war causes in ukraine it seems like such a, a miscalculation on, on putin's part in hindsight obviously maybe he anticipated it would go a lot better than it did but as we are now what more than three weeks into this what, what do we make of, of putin's decision and, and was it a miscalculation then I believe that uh, for quite a long time, no one uh, was daring to challenge Putin. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because uh, he established the reputation of being a Tao, uh, Tao leader. And, uh, well, for example, uh, let's consider the example related to Ukraine. Uh, the previous president, no, not the previous president, the president, uh, the president who was ousted from his office in 2014, yeah. uh, he uh, himself uh, had a reputation of being a Attack in, in, in a way uh, because he used physical violence uh, in in office management reportedly. But anyway, according to him, he was afraid of uh, saying a word against Putin, and he was feeling quite uncomfortable any time when he was asked about something by Putin. And I believe that the situation of uh, many leaders, and not only post-Soviet leaders, it means that uh, they, they, they didn't challenge, uh, and they even uh, didn't think that it would be possible to challenge Putin. Ukrainians did, and to great surprise, uh, I mean, they have been faring uh, pretty well. Well, uh, the word pretty well is probably not applicable because it comes at great price, but they challenged. They said, no, uh, we, want, uh, we won't say what you are telling us, especially when you are telling us in such way. It means by intimidating us. And this is something, again, this, this is important president. You started uh, by mentioning a president. President. It means the, uh, the address of President uh, Zelensky. And this is another pres- precedent that was set by Ukraine. It means a more or less successful challenge. To, uh, to, to, to the politics that is built by pure force, by, uh, by, 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 uh, by this old-fashioned concept of politics. Let me put this uh, in, in these terms. So moving forward, uh, as, as this continues to bog down in Ukraine, as, as the Russian economy suffers you know, tremendous uh, impact from, from all of these sanctions, what does that portend then potentially for Vladimir Putin's decision-making? What, what is he capable of? What, what, what concerns you at this point? Uh, well, I recently uh, attempted, because it's too early, I mean, um, uh, d- uh, data is still uh, coming in, and, and it's difficult to make uh, any generalizations. But yeah. preliminary results, they show that uh, the media coverage of the war in Russia uh, is, uh, is organized in such a manner that uh, the information received by Russians has mostly nothing to do with the real situation. For example, no information about causalties, because uh, any information about causalties uh, that uh, Russians are suffering in Ukraine is, considering, is considered as uh, so-called fake news. And uh, at the start of the, uh, of the war, uh, Russian parliament uh, introduced a law that uh, essentially made a criminal offense, uh, the diffusion of what they call fake news about the war in Ukraine. As a result, uh, again, population is mostly unaware what is going on. And uh, um, this unawareness means that the response, the true response uh, to sanctions, to losses that Russia is suffering in, in, in Ukraine is delayed. And it will be delayed, unfortunately. It means that, again, you mentioned sanctions. Indeed, this time sanctions are much more severe and much more consequential. But uh, these consequences will be seen a bit later. They are not immediate. Because even uh, the uh, foreign exchange rate, initially it was uh, essentially uh, the the, the exchange rate for dollar was increased threefold in Russia and so forth. But uh, now the the market is more or less adjusting and adapting, uh, especially given the the administrative measures of regulation introduced by, by, by the central bank. 
it means that we should not really expect that uh, sanctions would store, uh, would start working very soon and uh, very efficiently. It would take time. The same is true about the public reaction or mass reaction to the war. When people see that, again, coffins are arriving from Ukraine, and uh, these are Russian soldiers who are killed, and uh, the news are not saying anything about these soldiers, only at that point uh, mass opinion may, uh, may start reacting more seriously. But at this point, again, uh, I believe that the Russian government is uh, restricting restricting access to the information uh, more or less efficiently. We'll see where it all goes from here. Your piece is uh, up at theconversation.com. As mentioned, Professor Olenek, thanks uh, for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that's Professor Anton Olenek at uh, Memorial University in Newfoundland. Uh, his piece uh, up at theconversation.com on why Vladimir Putin is botching his Ukrainian invasion. And the federal budget that we're expecting probably in about three weeks, with all of this uncertainty, you know, the situation in Europe, the situation in China, uh, the concern around inflation, how cautious does this budget need to be? Now, there have been some reports in recent days suggesting that this is going to be more of a back-to-basics kind of budget. Maybe the liberals are prepared to back away from some of this ambitious spending they were talking uh, about doing. So what needs to be the priorities right now? And recognizing some of this uncertainty, recognizing the inflationary pressures that the Canadians are dealing with right now. What kind of a budget do we need? But also wanting to spur economic growth, job creation, innovation, productivity. Uh, so some big decisions for the federal government to make. Joining us uh, for some thoughts and all of that, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Robert Asselin, who's a senior vice president for policy with the Business Council of Canada, uh, also a former advisor to the uh, uh, the federal finance minister, former budget director uh, to the minister of finance. Robert, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, when when you look at everything going on right now globally, I mean, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, uh, potential for an economic slowdown in China, all of this uh, uncertainty, what what kind of a shadow is this all casting on, on this upcoming federal budget? We are in a very volatile, risky environment. I would say probably the riskiest we've seen in decades. As you said at the outset, very high inflation, actually historic inflation when you look at the last uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, you have an energy crisis that is uh, going on, uh, as we've seen with oil prices, where basically uh, supply can't meet demand right now. We have uh, governments who have put billions of billions of dollars in the economy in the last two years. We have monetary policy, central banks, that have also put a lot of monetary stimulus in the economy. So that makes for an economy that uh, could uh, overease, as we're seeing it with the inflation number, but for longer mm-hmm. than we had thought before. So I think what is important in, that, in those circumstances is do no harm. Don't add fuel to the fire. Be prudent. Don't overspend. If you have to spend, spend on the things that will make the economy more productive, uh, create more long-term growth over time, but don't do anything in the short term that would that would fuel inflation or that would cause uh, the economy to overeat. Right. So in that sense, then, the idea of big stimulus spending th- doesn't make sense right now. Then. 
It doesn't make uh, any sense. And, and, and frankly, in my view, it didn't make any sense last year when the government uh, did introduce $100 billion over a few years of new spending. You will remember that uh, the government thought it was necessary to stimulate the economy. And what we're seeing on all economic indicators, you look at GDP, you look at employment numbers, you look at, obviously, inflation. What we're seeing is, is an economy that is functioning uh, at capacity, essentially at pre-pandemic level. This is not to say that everything is perfect and certain sectors are still not suffering. I have a lot of sympathy, for example, for SMEs, restaurants who have been struggling with these horrific conditions. Uh, but overall, the Canadian economy is doing pretty well. And, uh, you know, it is the job of fiscal policy, uh, the federal government, to make sure that uh, in the short term you, know, you, make, you don't make things worse. Right, yeah, certainly. I mean, we saw the jobless numbers for, for January exceed economists' expectations. So we're, we are seeing a lot of positives as, as much as there is all of this uncertainty. So in terms, though, of, of looking at productivity and long-term growth, how, did, how does the government ap- approach that in a policy sense so that we're not overheating things right now, but we're setting the stage for future growth? Exactly. So that's the sweet spot. And that's difficult. The government has to be very disciplined. And the question there, I think, is what can enhance what can enhance productivity? And the answer there is uh, mostly innovation by creating uh, innovation and diffusing innovation in the economy. That's how you enhance your productive capacity. So you create more output per hour, and uh, you grow your economy over long term. What we have right now is an economy that depends too much on consumption, on real estate. And over the long term, I think that's very dangerous. So what you want to have is healthy business investments, an environment where business feel that they can invest at scale, grow, scale, and uh, that our economy become more productive. So I think uh, the government needs to, uh, you know, make sure the regulatory framework is there for businesses to invest. It can take uh, years to get a permit to build something. That's not an efficient way to do. Taxation has to remain competitive. Otherwise, I think it's uh, it's not a good incentive for businesses to invest. And then I think on R&D, we have to place certain bets in sectors that we have an advantage in, uh, including energy sector, obviously, agriculture, uh, and life and sciences. So those are sectors where Canada can excel globally, where often businesses are reluctant to make uh, difficult investments on the R&D because they don't see an obvious return. This is where the government, in my view, can de-risk some private investment and be helpful. Right, and and I think you know, with regard to Canada's uh, emissions targets and the the investments needed there, maybe there's a case to be made for you know incentivizing that, providing industry with some certainty. Yes. How does that conflict with you know the the current situation with with energy and the potential that? Uh, you know, Canada can be a part of the solution when it comes to adding to to global supply. The reality is uh, this transition will take some time. We know that even if we wanted to, uh, you know, there'll be significant demand for oil and gas going forward. And as such, I think Canada should be smart and not lose, uh, if anything, gain market shares globally. Uh, but of course, working on the transition and energy, the energy sector is on board. Our companies are being responsible. They're already investing billions of dollars 
to make their business less carbon intensive. And so we need to accelerate that transition. And you're absolutely right that the federal government has a role to de-risk some of that and those investments made by our companies, our energy companies, over time so that we have certainty and that we have uh, a very buoyant, a very uh, attractive energy sector, and frankly, uh, a sector that has been key to uh, Canadian economic growth uh, historically and going, and I would argue, going forward. Well, we're expecting to see that budget in a few weeks, and I guess we'll see uh, how much of this uh, is included. Much more at uh, thebusinesscouncil.ca. Robert, appreciate your insight, and uh, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Robert Aslan. He's uh, with the Business Council of Canada, Senior Vice President of Policy, also former Budget Director uh, for the Federal Finance Minister. So his recommendation to Ottawa, basically do no harm, which seems like a great place to start. Don't add to the inflationary pressure, he says. So all this idea of more stimulus spending, that, that needs to be pulled back. You know, there, there's not a case for that right now, he says. But obviously, it's something the government's going to have to keep a close eye on. There is concern uh, that if we do see some kind of a global economic slowdown, we could still see high inflation. And, you know, some have sort of ominously warned about the possibility of what they call stagflation, which is clearly something to be concerned about, high inflation and, and slow economic growth. Now, for now, though, it looks as though the Canadian economy continues to, to rebound strongly. And so I think the federal government needs to take that into account and, and have that more back-to-basics budget that at least we've been hearing some rumors about. Off the top in this hour, though, I want to take a look at the idea of uh, what's been described as the uh, Northern Corridor concept and, and how feasible it is, how constitutionally and legally feasible it is. The whole idea of the Northern Corridor concept is to sort of have some almost like pre-approved rights of way that, that would exist across the country, almost like routes or pathways linking communities, linking coasts, linking to the north, uh, and those that, that kind of uh, those segments, that space, could be used for all kinds of different infrastructure, whether it be building new roads and highways, rail lines, yes, pipelines, transmission, even you know communication. Uh, so to have the, the corridor set aside, uh, the thinking goes, would make it easier then to build those projects along that route. So the extent to which this is necessary and, and how feasible it would be, th these are different conversations. But a new uh, study of today, report out for the uh, School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, is looking at the legal questions, the constitutional challenges around this kind of a concept. It's, it's big, it's ambitious. Is it too big and too ambitious uh, for Canada and our constitutional realities? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about uh, these questions is the author of this piece. Very pleased to welcome back to the program, uh, Professor Dwight Newman, who's a professor of law at the University of Saskatchewan, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous and Constitutional and International Law. Professor Newman, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, I'm glad to be with you and thank you for your interest. Let's talk a bit more about, you know, the concept itself, the idea of, of a national corridor. I, I tried to give a bit of a, an overview of this, but did I leave anything important out? What, what is the, the concept here as you see it? 
Well, I mean, you've outlined the, the main concept. The idea is what's sometimes called in the, the more technical language of multimodal um, uh, uh, transportation, or sorry, multimodal right-of-way for transportation and communication infrastructure. But basically the idea of a route uh, across uh, a more northerly route within Canada and potentially to the north uh, that allows for the construction of various forms of transportation and communications infrastructure um, with a, a bit of a different governance mechanism for that rather than having to seek approval project by project. And that's something that the Senate's been considering for a, a number of years and has a major project out of the University of Calgary School of Public Policy to consider. And uh, the paper that I've done is just responding to some of the, the legal questions about that. Right. Well, and obviously, yeah, there, there are a lot of legal questions that arise. I mean, I think if we use pipelines as an example, you know, given some of the, the um, projects that have been proposed in recent years, people have kind of an understanding, maybe a rough understanding of the process. There is a process that a project like this has to go through, a, a regulatory review process. If we had this kind of a, a corridor where some of this, I guess, would already be sort of pre-approved in a way, how would that change the the legal realities around you know approving a project like a pipeline? Right. Uh, I mean, the idea of this, to be clear, is very long term. It involves very visionary thinking uh, to consider the possibility of aspects then being pre-approved that this is a a suitable route for these kinds of things. Um, And then there would, of course, be an approval process around each project within the governance mechanism on the the corridor, Um, but it wouldn't necessarily involve all of the same steps uh, that are involved uh, when one's talking about just launching a new route altogether for each project. Uh, this would bundle them together um, and have, as you say, a sort of pre-approval that this route might be one that's used for these different types of uh, projects. And so some steps of the regulatory process would be easier, even while there would be some level of scrutiny of each project within the governance mechanism on the uh, corridor. In terms of you know the the jurisdiction on 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 something like this maybe it it seems superficially anyway like okay we're talking about something that would you know go across the country you know much like a pipeline if a pipeline's going from one part of the country to another that's federal jurisdiction that presumably something like this would be too but is it is it more complex than that Right. So there, there are two complications to that here. Uh, I'll say up front that, first of all, from a purely legal standpoint, there's a good case that it's still federal jurisdiction to do that, subject to Indigenous rights issues, of course. So that's one of the further mm-hmm. dimensions. This is a variety of Indigenous rights issues that arise in the context of any kind of project along these lines, a linear infrastructure, um, uh, Indigenous rights, duty to consult, but Indigenous rights more generally arise. The second aspect is over the coming decades, um, and that's the scale you're thinking on for a, pro- a, a corridor like this, uh, not just next year, but decades or centuries ahead, um, uh, could the provinces end up constitutionally being interpreted as having more authority on that than they've been seen as having as a possibility. Um, So um, I end up arguing that uh, the Constitution certainly grounds a federal leadership role, um, but it may be safest to work with the provinces as well as obviously with Indigenous communities, uh, and in doing so to attain something that works for everyone. Yeah, and I mean, we can look in, in the past at individual 
projects that have been built, but I, there's, there's not, it doesn't seem like there's really a precedence for this kind of a thing, is there? No, there's nothing quite like this. Um, I, there are very major individual projects that have been built, and an analogy would be something like, the, say, the Trans-Canada Highway, a major project yeah. like that. You could go back further in time to, to railways, sort of the more um, uh, country-shaping types of projects along those lines. Obviously, they've on, been on an ongoing basis, things like pipelines and so on as well. Uh, but if you think of... Uh, uh, things with some analogies. It would be things like the Trans-Canada Highway that fundamentally reshapes the transportation infrastructure and that involves this kind of cooperation of the federal and provincial governments in the past. And today, of course, we recognize increasingly the significance of Indigenous nations as part of the discussions as well. Right. And I think there, there's a different understanding of that today than there was, you know, say 50 years ago uh, or, you know, when the Trans-Canada Highway was being constructed. So how does how does that change the obligation then on, on the federal government, on provincial governments when moving forward? Um, well, indeed. So since 1982, we've had a, a constitutional entrenchment of Indigenous rights. Uh, and there's been ongoing interpretation of that. So that uh, that shape, shapes aspect of what federal and provincial governments can agree to and says essentially that Indigenous nations are going to have a, a place at the table and a place within uh, the governance mechanism and uh, need to be involved in the, the discussions leading up to this from an early stage. Um, the federal-provincial balance um, in legal terms probably hasn't shifted as much, um, but uh, there, there are ongoing uh, arguments around that, and uh, there are reasons within a federation just to try to work together, even if the federal government could assert a certain unilateral role, uh, it will be more constructive um, to, uh, to have everyone working together in a lot of ways. And uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, a bit of the landscape on it. Right. And so if there is that will, and I guess ultimately, you know, first and foremost, this is a political question as to whether governments would want to do such a thing. But if there is that will, then the, the Constitution doesn't necessarily need to be an obstacle here. Then in some ways, it, it does provide a bit of a, a roadmap, uh, if you will, to to how this could be done. Indeed. Apart from uh, the uh, indications within of uh, a federal leadership role, which some could argue would even ground a, a federal unilateral power. Um, what's actually key to observe in the Constitution when we are talking about working together uh, is that the, the Constitution and interpretation of it allows for a lot of uh, cooperation and delegation of some forms, even between governments and levels of government. Um, there are certain restraints on that, and uh, I get into that in a more technical way within the paper, but I would just say the Constitution actually facilitates cooperation between the federal and provincial governments where there's the will to do that. And the idea of this kind of uh, corridor is uh, to have that will um, to find an easier route forward on each individual decision by making the decision together in advance um, to have uh, a process that uh, that carries that through along a particular route to allow for ongoing development of the country. Very interesting. Well, this paper is up at policyschool.ca, as, as well as other research on, on this idea of the Northern Corridor concepts. Professor Newman, thanks so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate this. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, I hope uh, listeners will take up your invitation and look more into it.
All right. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Uh, Dwight Newman, uh, Professor of Law, University of Saskatchewan, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights and Constitutional and International Law. And so the author of this analysis, sort of looking through a constitutional lens, if governments were interested in doing this, are, are there any significant legal or constitutional barriers that would prevent this? Does it at least provide some guidance on how governments could proceed? I think the idea is really interesting. So just envision sort of rooting something out on a map and saying, what if we just took this whole stretch that you know runs from coast to coast or runs to the northern coast or, or however we, we wanted to, to frame it? This is going to be a, a new route for these kinds of projects. So it's not someone coming forward out of the blue with a, a new pipeline project, say, for example, that runs through a, a sensitive area of wherever. They were already taking the position in the first place that this is a, a, a route that a pipeline could safely run. Or transmission lines or even a highway or some sort of uh, technological, you know, Internet connection sort of a situation, that, those kinds of projects. We've already sort of determined ahead of time that this is an appropriate place for these things to be built. So you sort of do all a lot of that work anyway ahead of time. Say, does this work? Is everybody okay with this? Are there any problems here? And if you could do that, then the idea of someone coming along and saying, hey, you know, we want to build a pipeline along that route, theoretically, <laughs> that could happen pretty quickly. I don't know how realistic it is, but I think it's an interesting idea. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.